Will you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter 3, as we continue our series in that book of 1 Peter. The title of the series is Living Right in a World Gone Wrong, as you see on the screen. And then the guys are coming to the front with Bibles in hand. They're going to make their way to the back so that if you need a copy of Scripture, just get their attention. They'll get one to you, and it's marked at the passage we'll be considering. 1 Peter chapter 3. One of the great struggles for professing Christians is the tendency to live lives through the week that are quite different from the face we put on for Sunday. Now, one reason that people do this is because they've adopted the notion that there's value in just showing up at church, that something happens at church that will cover over all that I did the week prior. There's actually a Latin term that conveys that notion, ex opere and operato. It means from the work done. The idea is that the sacrament, depending on the church you go to, you may receive a sacrament on Sunday that results in grace to the recipient from the work done, apart from the holiness of the minister or the participant. Now, in order to get the grace of the sacrament, one has to be in a right disposition upon receiving it. That is, there must be an openness to receive the grace. And because of notions like that, it causes many to go through a a weekly routine of, in effect, getting your grace face on. And since church is where you get it, it means getting your church face on. And this results often in a disconnect between one's religious life and then his real life. The church face and the everyday face, or as we say, two-faced. Now, I'm not two-faced because I agree with Abraham Lincoln who said, if I had two faces, would I be using this one? (laughs) And of course, this tendency, though, to be different at church than the way we are elsewhere, it's not confined to sacramental churches. If we see our righteousness as tied to a particular thing that we do, whatever that thing is, usually something religious like going to church, then we'll up our game whenever it's time for that thing. That separation of life into religious and regular life is absolutely fatal to the mission that Jesus has given us. Because the genuineness of the message that we proclaim is intentionally connected by God to the transformed life of the Christian. So when people see the disconnect between what we say we're about on the weekend and what we're like during the week, they have no reason to give us a hearing, and they will not. I worked a real job as a computer programmer for over 20 years, and I saw this in action more than once in the workplace. At one assignment, I was in a small group of programmers who all got along quite well, with the exception of one guy who nobody liked. It didn't take long to find out he was a religious zealot, full of Bible knowledge and unsolicited advice, but devoid of Christ-like demeanor and speech. He saw himself as being persecuted for being a Christian, when the reality was he was just intensely disliked because he was a jerk. 
I said in last week's message that the most powerful difference between a Christian and non-Christian is not found in our religious activity, but rather in the radically different values expressed in common experience. That is, we have a higher and more noble calling, and that higher and more noble calling is seen in everyday life. And that's why we have the key verse for this book of 1 Peter in chapter 2 and verse 12. That tells us to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now I want you to notice from that key verse the connection of our lives and our mission to bring people to God. They cannot be separated. And in our passage today, we're going to see what I have at the very bottom of the outline that's inserted in your program. I encourage you to take a look at that outline. At the very bottom, there is a a take-home truth that says our distinctive lives are to point others to our distinctive Lord. Our different distinctive lives are an instrument that God uses to point others to our unique, one-of-a-kind Master and Lord Jesus. Let's ask the Lord to help us now, then, as we look at 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13 in that regard. Our Father, again, we ask for your aid, always needy. And we come to you with open hands and open hearts and open minds so that we can be changed by the truth of your word. We ask your spirit to move upon us so that we will leave this place different and better equipped to serve you and honor you. We pray that if any entered this room without a relationship with you through the Lord Jesus, that that will be settled in this hour. We entrust this to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I say, first of all, in your outline this, that that good living is generally viewed as good. And I say that because of what verses 13 and 14 tell us in chapter 3. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. When I say in that first line, good living is generally viewed as good, I'm saying even among those who don't believe what we believe, there is a general admiration for a truly Christian life. Now notice I say truly Christian life. I'm not talking about the life that's just like everybody else's but invokes Jesus when in trouble. I'm not talking about the life that talks but not walks. I'm not talking about the life that is so-called Christian on Sunday but the rest of the week not so much. But truly good Christian living is generally seen as good by those who observe it, even those who are not Christian themselves. Now, why do I say that? I say it because there are two features in those two verses that we just read. Two features in the language in which our New Testament was first written that help us to see that. You may know that your New Testament was originally written in Greek, and it's been translated for us into English. And verse 13 actually starts in Greek with a word that's not there in English. It starts with the word and. And so it would literally read, and who is going to harm you if you're eager to do, to do good? 
And so that's connecting now verse 13 with what precedes. And in particular, what it's connecting to is verses 9 through 12 of chapter 3, which speak of the Christian's relationship to the non-Christian society and how, in fact, there are going to be times when you will not be approved. Even those we're going to see generally, genuine Christian life is viewed as good. There will be times when you're insulted. And verse 9 says as much. Take a look with me. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So these verses are obviously about how to respond when we're insulted and mistreated. So the Bible provides a balanced and accurate view of our situation. There will clearly be times when we're mistreated because we're Christians, but not, as I say in the outline, generally, not usually. Verse 12 is saying even in the times that that happens, those who do it will not ultimately get away with it. That's verse 12 because the face of the Lord is against those. And then verse 13 continues the same theme with, and who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? You could read that this way. And in any case, in addition to the fact that the Lord's face is against those who might mistreat you, so you're on the winning side, and in any case, who's going to harm you? Or, and besides, who's going to harm you anyway for living as a Christian? And that's made even more clear by the way the next verse, verse 14, is written. It says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Now, in Greek, there are several ways to construct a, an if-then sentence, a conditional sentence, one that has an if in it. And this one like, says, even if you should suffer for what is right. There are several ways that that could be done. Each of them has a different meaning. One is uh, this way. If this happens, and it definitely will, Or another way for it to be written is, if this happens, and it probably will. Or another way for it to be written is, if this happens, and it probably will not. And this one, if you should suffer for what is right, is written in a way that you probably will not. And that's why the NIV inserts, but even if. It happens. He's clearly addressed in other passages and will in subsequent passages, mistreatment, insults, that kind of thing. So it does happen, but it is not consistent. It is not always happening, and in a given life at a particular place and time, it is unlikely to happen. The Bible's presenting a balanced and accurate picture of what happens to genuine followers of Christ who are living in a fallen world. We will be maligned and insulted, even persecuted, But it's also telling us that's not generally the case, and if it's happening regularly and systematically, that's an exceptional time and circumstance. Generally, and that's why I use that word, a good life is viewed as a good thing. And again, that's why we have the key verse in chapter 2 and verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans so that they see your good works and glorify God. So Peter is saying that there there is 
to be an effect between the way we live and then the effect that that has on those who are observing. So G.K. Chesterton said this, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. And so what we have to do is be genuine Christians, true Christians. And then people are to see that is what Peter is saying. And then they see that genuine Christianity, not the fake stuff. And then see what God does with that. So what are these good lives among the pagans that are to have that effect, that are generally viewed as good, even by those outside the Christian family? What does a life like that look like? And I have in your outline four points that a good life is like. A good life, first of all, is one of integrity. Integrity. Integrity means that your life is whole, that your heart is not divided. In fact, integrity comes from the Latin word from which we get integer, whole. In other words, people who have integrity behave in ways that are consistent with what they say they believe and the values they hold. Their integrity is seen in the various roles that they play in life, so there isn't Integrity in one area, but not in other areas. They are whole, consistent. And that is the way this passage in 1 Peter is structured. Remember going back to chapter 2 and verse 13. Right after the key verse, live such good lives among the pagans, then Peter starts to tell us the roles, the various spheres in which this life is to be carried out. And chapter 2 and verse 13 begins with our responsibilities as citizens to the government. And then in chapter 2 and verse 18, our responsibilities as employers, employees to employers. And then beginning in chapter 3 and verse 1, our responsibilities in the home. And so integrity says in all of these roles, as a citizen, as an employee, as a wife or as a husband, in all of these, there's a wholeness, a consistency to the values and the beliefs that I have. So what is it that keeps us from being whole in our lives? What is it that keeps us from seeing all areas of our lives, all the tasks we do, all the roles we play? What keeps us from seeing them as tied together rather than separate compartments? Well, I would suggest this. It's failure to see every facet of life as it relates to God. You see, even though there's great diversity in our lives in terms of all the things that we do and all the duties that we perform, they are all to be done quorum Deo in the presence of God, before the face of God. So I don't have a church face that's different from my real life face. I'm to have a Jesus face, Christ's image that is seen in all roles and in all circumstances. And that's a life of integrity that is whole. This good life that we're called to that will be generally viewed as good is one of integrity. But secondly, I say in the outline, a good life is one of consistency. If you find yourself up and down depending on your circumstances, then you can be sure that you have dethroned God in your thinking. Let me say that again. If you find yourself up and down with your circumstances, 
you can be sure that you have dethroned God in your thinking. When life becomes about you, then you've dethroned the God around whom it is to be centered. When life becomes about you, you're up when it's good for you and you're down when it's bad for you. And so when you are up and down with the circumstances, dear friend, be sure you have dethroned God. If it's about you, you'll find your, not God's, way to handle it. Rather than running to God, you'll run from Him because after all, if it were about God, I wouldn't be in this state to begin with. But I've made it about me. And then I'll handle it. So let me ask you then, as you ask yourself, well, hey, does that describe me? Am I up and down in my circumstances? And if that's the case, you've dethroned God. It's become about you rather than Him. So what is your preferred method of handling it then? Because surely you have one. To sulk? To indulge? To escape? If it's about you, you'll find yourself invoking God only when you need something. And your relationship with Him will be what I call transactional rather than transformational. You know what I mean by that? I just come to God in bits and pieces. When things aren't going the way they ought to go, and the way they ought to go is the way I want them to go. So that's transacting. Rather than transformational, I'm walking with God every moment of every day because He is my Father. If it's about you, you'll evaluate God. Now hear this. You'll evaluate God based on what you perceive He's done for you or withheld from you or done to you. But if it's about God, then I can live an even-keeled, more consistent life, come what may. I can worship the God who I know... Now here, He transforms the trouble from an obstacle into an opportunity. And I can say with the great apostle in Scripture, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. Now, the way I've phrased this in your outline is good living is generally viewed as good. And then I've said a good life looks like this. But perhaps better, in fact better, the better way for you to think of it is this. It's not good living, it's godly living. And it's not just a good life looks like this, it's a, it's a godly life looks like this. And the reason I'm saying that is because the key issue here in whether or not we're going to live these good lives is whether or not they are centered and focused and anchored on God. And so a good life is one of integrity. And it's one of consistency. And I say thirdly, it's one of trust. Verse 14 says this, Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. And so I say a good life, a godly life, is one of trust. 
Because we don't fear when we trust that God will take care of us and things. Author Ed Welch says this, Do not be afraid. Would you believe that this is the most frequent command in the Bible? More than 300 times, God commands His people to not be afraid. And there are two ways, he says, to hear these commands. One is, stop it right now. Don't be afraid. In this case, fear and worry would just be plain wrong. It would violate God's direct command. When afraid or anxious, you confess to the Lord that it's sin, and then you confess it again and again. But he says there's another way to hear this command. Have you ever heard a parent say to a child, be careful? Technically, it's a command, yet no child would take it that way. The parent's not saying, be careful or you'll be in trouble. But I love you, and my desire is that you be safe. And here is what Jesus says to us in Luke chapter 12. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. So what shall I fear? What need you fear? This is not an edict from the king. The term little flock gives you a window into the heart of God. It's both a plea and an encouraging word from the Father who knows us and loves us. It's exactly what we need because when we're afraid, we desperately need someone bigger than ourselves in whom we can trust. But you will only turn to Him consistently if in a transformed way, a transformed view of life, it's about Him, not you, so that you've developed that confident trust in Him. A good life, a godly life, is one of integrity and consistency and trust. And I say in your outline a fourth thing. It's a life of submission. Submission, and I say it for this reason. Because verse 15 begins this way. Please look. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And so I submit myself, I place myself under Him as Lord. Him as Master. Not those who would do me harm. They are not the Lord. They are not the Master. This is why I need not fear their threats. and need not be frightened. It is Christ who is Lord. And so I place myself under Him and into His care. When I fear people or circumstances, then I do not see Christ as Master and Lord. The end of verse 14 is telling us not to fear, and it's a quote. You notice it's in quotations? Look at the end of verse 14. You know, do not fear their threats. Do not be afraid. And it's in quotation marks. It's from the first part of your Bible, Isaiah chapter 8. And then what is said in verse 15 that we just read, now to, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, that's a continuation of this quotation from Isaiah 8, even though there aren't quotation marks around it. Because here's what Isaiah 8 says. Do not fear what they fear. And do not dread it, 
The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. And in Isaiah chapter 8, the word Lord, if you want to look that up later, do that. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. The word Lord there is in all capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Many of you know that that's a convention used in our English translations to tell us that that word Lord is a translation of the name of God, Yahweh. And now Peter is quoting Isaiah 8. That's about Yahweh, God. And he's applying it to Christ. Do you see what Peter is then saying? Christ is God. And therefore he is your master and he is your Lord. Good living then, godly living, is generally viewed as good. And that godly living is living with integrity and with consistency and with trust and with submission. And when that happens, a second thing occurs, and I have that in your outline as well. This good or godly living gives opportunity for the good news. Notice verse 15. But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Be prepared. Be ready because of your trust rather than your fear. You do not fear their threats. Do not fear what might happen because in a fallen world it can and does happen. But don't fear that. In fact, generally speaking, your godly life will be viewed as a good thing overall. But even when it's not, do not, do not fear. Instead, be prepared, be ready. Even be eager to give a word and account for the difference that's displayed in your life in these common experiences. Be prepared because they will ask. And if they don't ask, it's because they're not seeing. If they don't ask, it's because there's no difference. Submission to Christ's Lordship determines the object of our reverence. Is it going to be Christ or men at the beginning of verse 14? Revere Christ as, as Lord. But if we revere Christ more than men, we'll not fear them and we'll be willing to live and speak. But notice this, the Lordship of Christ also affects the way we go about giving the gospel. And that's why verse 14 says you, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And that now is going to affect the answer that you give to those who ask. Be prepared to give an answer. And the word that's translated answer is one that some of you are familiar with. Apologia, we get apologetics from it, which means to defend what you believe. And so here it is saying, be ready now to give a defense of what it is you believe, what it is that makes you tick, that gives you this hope that is within you. When it says in your hearts, revere Christ as, as Lord. We could easily think that that's just some kind of an emotional thing. But it's not just the emotions in Scripture. The heart includes that. But in the Bible, the heart is the seat of the, the person, including how we think. 
And so when we set apart Christ as Lord, revere Him as Lord in our hearts, it means in our thinking as well, which is going to affect the way we present Christ to those who ask. You see this word heart used in this way regarding our reasoning and our meditating and understanding in a number of passages. One is in Romans chapter 1. The heart's the location of our reasoning. Although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But notice this, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. The heart is the location of our meditation according to Scripture. The psalmist says, may these words of my mouth, this meditation of my heart, be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The heart's the location of our understanding according to Proverbs. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your hearts on prudence or wisdom. The heart is the location of our thinking, according to Deuteronomy. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord God disciplines you. And finally, the heart is the location of our believing, according to Romans chapter 10. It is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And with your mouth you profess your faith and are saved. This godly living, then, where we set apart Christ in our hearts and in the way we think, which is going to affect the way we present this defense of the hope that we have within us. This godly living is going to result in us giving the good news, which has these three components to it, as I have in your outline. The good news produces a superior future life. And so you're living this godly life as Peter has described, this distinctive life that causes someone to ask of the hope that is within you. And because Christ is master of every part of you, including your thinking, it's going to affect the way now you present your reasoning to the inquirer. They're asking you for about this, this hope. And this good news, this hope that we have, produces, I say, a superior future life. And the reason I do that is because the word in verse 15 that's translated hope means this. A confident expectation of the fulfillment of God's promises. A confident expectation that God is going to fulfill His promises. So why can I live then, with a hope of a superior future life, because I trust that God is going to fulfill His promises. That's what hope is in Scripture. Hope is not a wish, it's a confident expectation based upon the promises of God. And so someone asks you, how can you go through that trial in that particular way? With the evident confidence and trust that I see in you, what is that about? Well, it's about this hope that I have. This confident expectation of a superior future life based upon the promises of my risen Lord. Secondly, this good news produces not only a superior future life, but I say a secure present life. I'm secure in the present. People look at you then, and they look at you in the heat of life and the difficulty of life, the same kind of stuff they go through. The common experiences, not the stuff you do at church, but what you do at work and in your neighborhood and in your family. And then they say, how can you do that? 
How can you handle that without worry and without anxiety? And you say, this good news, the gospel that's centered on Jesus, produces this secure life right now. I am secure in Him. And therefore, I don't worry about what you worry about. I'm not worried about what they might do to me, and I'm not worried about the kinds of things they worry about. You all are familiar with Matthew chapter 6. Where Jesus says, do not worry. And then he says, look at the lilies. Does your father not take care of them? How much more will he not take care of you if he clothes them and if he feeds them? But then Jesus says this, you do not worry about tomorrow. For the pagans run after these things. That's how they think. That's the insecure life they have. But you have a secure life in Jesus if you're pursuing the godly kind of life that we described earlier. So the good news produces, you say in answer, a superior future life because I have this confident expectation and a secure present life. And then thirdly, the good news produces a respectful social life. A respectful social life. End of verse 15. But do all of this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. You see, the purpose of our defense, the purpose of our apologia, the purpose of our giving an answer, a reason for the hope that we have, is not to shame someone. It's not to get the upper hand. It's not to show that we're smarter or superior. And that's why the end of verse 15 tells us, do this with gentleness and respect. Remember, God has designed it to connect your life with your message. And so your life has to be one that treats people with that kind of humility. That's the word for gentleness and respect when you give that answer. Contrary to what so many think when they think of apologetics, defending the faith. It's to show them we're smarter than they are. It's to show them that we're, that we're better than they are. And the end of verse 15 is counter to that. Do this with gentleness and respect. It is not to shame anyone, but anyone who rejects Jesus as Lord and the one you're presenting with your life and with your message will ultimately, not by you, but by God, be put to shame. And so our distinctive lives are to point others to our distinctive Lord. Now I wonder how many are in this room who profess Jesus but don't live lives of integrity and consistency and trust and submission. We're going to bow before the Lord in just a moment. And I encourage you to take that to the Lord. And say, Lord, I want to cease this transactional approach I have with you. I need to be transformed by you. From the inside out, so that my heart belongs to you. And my heart belongs to you every moment of every day. Not just when I'm in trouble. Because it's not about me, it's about you. And I wonder 
if some of us have never had that transformational approach to life because we've not been transformed. Because we put our church face on. If the things that I've described from our brother Peter are not characteristic of you, dear friend, it may be because you have never been transformed from the inside out. And I say that then to invite you to come to the one who alone can change you. There may be some who came into this room, maybe you're here for the very first time, and you know I've never been changed. And you know that the stuff that we've been talking about this morning is foreign to you. That's not the way I live. That's not the way I think. That's because we don't have this relationship with Jesus. But the good news, the gospel, that's what the gospel means. Good news is you can have that. And we would dearly love for you to begin that relationship today. It may be that there are church members here who thought they had a relationship with Jesus, but their lives don't show that. Being a church member does not mean you have a relationship with Jesus. It should. That's a requirement for joining, but we can't see hearts. But the Holy Spirit can. And He is now. And so I encourage you, as we bow together, to do business with God. Do this, yes, transaction. But do this transaction for the purpose of transformation. It's a transaction that God does within you changing your allegiance and your desires and your values and your focus from you to Him. Now, how do I, what, what happens with that? Just recognize the facts. Have the humility to recognize. Realize that you are a sinner and your sin has been shown to you in the self-centered focus of your life that then is displayed in the ways that we've talked about. But recognize this. God the Son, Jesus, has come on a mission to reclaim those who are lost. And He has died for your sin. He invites you to trust Him as your Savior and bow before Him as your Lord. So Lord, I repent of my self-focus. That word repent means I want to now follow you with my life. Go your way, not my way. I want to stop the once a week, maybe, game face, church face. I want to be transformed by you and follow you, and give my life to you. You receive Jesus Christ into your life. You do that when we bow, by from your heart, remember Romans chapter 10, from the heart we believe, with the mouth we confess, from your heart to God, you say, Lord, this is what I've come to realize, and I realize that Jesus is my Savior, Jesus is my Lord, I give my entire life to Him. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank You for our brother Peter. And we thank You for the words that, of his that You have preserved for us to show us Your design for transformed lives to be used in Your mission. Lord, there are so many ways that these transformed lives are to be displayed. Your Word tells us those. They are ways for us to then analyze, examine whether we be in the faith, as our brother Paul said. And so I pray that that's happening now, that the probing of your Spirit is moving upon hearts, that perhaps you might draw some to yourself who have not known you, who do not have a transformational relationship with the Lord.
and who are effecting that now by calling out to the name of the Lord who will save. And Lord, for any who came into this room knowing that this is foreign, God, in your providence, you somehow worked in their circumstances so that they're here and they wanted to be with Christian people or at someone's invitation, but they know they didn't know the gospel message. They've never appropriated it in their lives. And now they are calling out on the Lord to be saved, delivered, rescued from their self-centered focus to turn to the God who made them and who made them to be focused on Him. Lord, we will give you the honor and the praise and the glory for what you do in and through these people. And Lord, we need, I need your grace every moment of every day. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.